Action Park Media. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glut. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Today I'm joined by renowned gastroenterologist and neuroscientist Dr. Emron Mayer. We're going to discuss his new book, The Gut Immune Connection, How Understanding Why We're Sick Can Help Us Regain Our Health. You can find him at emrinmayer.com. Dr. Emron Mayer, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Nice to be on the show. Um, <laughs> I would love before... Uh, before we get into the uh, gut immune connection, can we can we just for the purposes of of so I have a clear understanding and so everybody listens listening has a clear understanding. What is the microbiome? So the microbiome is the combined functional capacity and the individual players, um, individual players being the microbes and the functional capacities, all their genes, the millions of genes, and all the enzymes and molecules that they can produce. So correctly, if you just talk about the microbes themselves, you should say microbiota. But um, I think microbiome has sort of become the, the general term that people use talking about this topic. Okay, yeah. I mean, um, the way I've heard it explained previously is that the amount of mass or like if an alien life form was to look at us they would see much more of other stuff than they would of us and all that other stuff is is doing something it's not um it's not it's not just there by happenstance and it's it is ubiquitous these microorganisms you know invisible to the naked eye um, but certainly in terms of evolutionary history, they were the first ones. Um, they, they lived to the billions or trillions in the oceans. Um, they experimented with communication that ultimately became our neurotransmitters in the brain. Um, and, and they're everywhere. They're on every surface. Uh, they're in the air. They're on animals. They're in the water and the soil. Play a big role in the health of plants. Um, yeah, so the microbes will always be here. You know, um, if you think about a, a, a nuclear disaster, uh, it's not going to affect the microbes. They'll always be here. <laughs> right. And so, and so what, what you're dealing with really is how to have uh, the most cohesive relationship we can with these little tiny guys that are having a great effect on us. I think what's required is to become aware of it since we can't see them or touch them or communicate with them directly. I think we have to become aware that there is this system um, and then we have to interact with that system in a, in a rational way, uh, which is based on an increasing knowledge base of, um, you know, of, of, of what these microbes can do and how they can talk to our organs and uh, what role they play in, in, in our health. The hard thing is, as I said, I mean, like it's you're dealing with something that you can't see, just like with, I mean, most of these microbes we talk about are good guys, but then obviously also the bad guys, the microorganisms, you know, the viruses and the, uh, the pathogens that can kill us and the, uh, you know, as, as we have experienced in the pandemic can kill, you know, millions of people around the world, really. So I think that's what I um, mostly think about when, when I'm, when I'm thinking about the stuff that we can't see that's having an effect on me, I'm thinking about illness um, in, in very literal terms, not, not in an overall health sense, but in like, I'm very sick. There's something in me and I need to either wait until it dies or I need to take some, uh, you know, medication or like an antibiotic to kill it, to actively kill it. 
And yeah, it's never something I can see. It's just something that I, I get a blood test or a swab in my throat or up my nose or w- whatever it may be. And they detect it and then they give me treatment. So, you know, and I know kind of abstractly that there are good bacterias, but, you know, I guess, I guess for my day-to-day life, I just go like, as long as I get some veggies, I'm good. I'm feeding them, you know, some, some cabbage, something that, you know, can be made fermented and still be good. This is how I think like kimchi or sauerkraut are really active. So I can even eat that raw with a little salt and it's going to go to work and feed these guys. But apparently there's much more to be done. Yeah. And that actually you, you addressing a really good point because, you know, in, in my new book, what I propose is a diet that's essentially based solely on what is the optimal diet for our good microbes. Um, Because if you follow that principle, you know, it seems, uh, you know, it seems kind of crazy, but if you follow this principle, you will do all the good things for us, for our own organism as well. So I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, most people are obsessed with uh, that they get enough protein, enough fat, enough, you know, um, uh, carbohydrates and what ratios are the best. All these macronutrients are absorbed in our small intestine. So they are of high caloric density. They're the overabundance of these foodstuffs is a main reason for our you know problems with obesity and, and metabolic diseases. So if you think about what do the microbes like and want, they don't want the things that are being absorbed in our small intestine. They want the things that go through our intestine are not being absorbed, uh, are not high caloric, um, because then they are in their element that can digest and metabolize um, these these larger molecules, uh, you know, which is fiber and plant polyphenols. Uh, uh, so if you just think about that, if, you know, to provide the optimal diet for the microbes, it comes down to most of these things, these large molecules come from plant sources. Um, so this whole argument, you know, uh, vegetarian, vegan, carnivore, omnivore, is, <laughs> is, is, is sort of defined by our own selfish, subjective uh, obsession, you know, what's good for us. If you just think about what's best for, for so, you know, so some people call this the holobiont, the, the, the microbial um genes and their functions and our host genes and functions so together we function in an optimal way um and in this in this phase of of human evolution i think we have so much food around us that um we harm ourselves so we continue focusing on what's good for us you know we we have to really think about that other side and um so conceptualizing something, understanding it, and um, something that we don't see, as we talked about in the beginning, is a key. So I, I think my whole thing starts with education. I think once people realize that, and I've spent a lot of time trying to change people's mindset on this, um, that we should move away from the purely uh, you know, selfish, subjective focus on um, you know, what's the health is true for me, because there's a, even a larger dimension. These things that are good for our microbes are also good for um, things around us in the environment. You know, growing these high caloric foods is bad for the environment. I mean, you have to just uh, the whole, you know, dairy and meat production obviously is a big cause of deforestation around the world. So if you think about, um, you know, feeding the microbes with largely plant-based food components, it will have the secondary benefit also for, uh, you know, for the environment, for the health of the soil, you know. So it's it's kind of an interesting concept that, um, and I haven't always thought this way, quite honestly, you know, as a gastroenterologist, you're selfishly focused on, on the health of your patient. Right. Um, but as I've progressed in my career, and particularly dealing with the microbes, I've developed this sort of um, one health concept, 
you know, it's just if you think about health, there's more dimensions than just our own cosmetic. If you're obese or non-obese, or there's there's a lot more that's connected to this. Right, but it, it, are when we're when we're thinking about the 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 microbiome, and, I, and I'm sorry, I've already lost the the, the more <laughs> proper terminology. The nomenclature went right over my head, but I, oh, that's I, perfect, perfect. Okay, so when when we're thinking about that, you know, because look, in fairness, I I find it hard to imagine these microbes as being of having any value other than how they're affecting me so it will still become selfish in my mind if i'm going what's the point of feeding these microbes unless i can make some connection to what they're doing to me or not doing for me and and then go like well i want to put them to work doing something else yeah yeah you know so so how how do you find, um, as you said, that some of them you can you can track uh, their interaction with specific organs, and and your book is called the mind gut connection. Like, what's happening there? Are we talking about uh, like hormonal things that that these affect? Yeah. So the you know my first book, the mind gut connection, is almost five years old now. It's it's interesting to me how. Um, this has become more popular than it was when I first wrote it. Uh, so this is the, the idea that started first with animal experiments that, um, you know, there, there, there's mouse models and um, of, of animals that grow up without any contact to microbes in a completely sterile, you know, so-called germ-free environment. And then people looked at their behavior and, um, so these these germ-free animals were less anxious, um, and then you could actually put microbes from another animal um, that, that is very anxious into these germ-free animals, and then they would adapt the behavior of that donor microbe. Wow. So the microbes from an, one animal could transfer <clears throat> behavioral traits such as anxiety, depression-like behavior to another animal just based on the microbes. So that was kind of a revolutionary paradigm shifting event. I was initially skeptical of that. Um, and um, well, then we showed this also in, in human experiments that you could, if you manipulate the microbes, it has effects on, on the brain that you can measure. <clears throat> and in the meantime, we know quite a bit. We know that there's several communication channels between the microbes and the, and the brain. So one is um, um, hormonal-like. So this means molecules that go through the bloodstream, systemic circulation from the gut microbes to your brain directly. <clears throat> so several of these have been identified, mainly in mouse models, since it's hard to do this kind of experiments in humans. Right. <clears throat> and then uh, there have also been experiments that that we can also now show in in humans that microbes interact with the immune system in the gut so the gut has another sort of unique property that most of our immune cells are localized in the gut <clears throat> very closely adjacent to the microbes and so certain microbes can talk to the immune system and um, then the immune system once activated also gets into the bloodstream with inflammatory mediators and again can affect the brain on, on the short term, but even more worrisome in the long term. So if you have a long-term exposure of these immune molecules <clears throat> to your brain, it's a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and probably depression. Um, so we have these hormonal substances, we have inflammatory substances, and we have a very important um, nerve pathway, the vagus nerve. So this, this is the nerve that connects the brain with, with all our organs, particularly the GI tract. And many microbes are able to talk to the nerve fibers, the, the terminals of this vagus nerve in the gut, and then a nerve signal is generated that goes into the brain. So we have at least three modalities or communication channels that that can transmit signals from the microbes to the, to the brain. And importantly, the brain has a way of talking to the microbes either directly 
So there's receptors on microbes that respond to our own neurotransmitters. So the microbes know what our brain is actually thinking about. Um, and there is another way the brain can do this. So when, when you're stressed or anxious, your gut goes into knots or contracts differently. That affects the habitat of the microbes that live in there. So they change their behavior in response to a stressful. Um, so if you put this all together, what I said in the last couple of minutes, it's this circular communication system. You know, the microbes can talk to the brain in the, in the short term, in the long term, and the brain can talk like all the emotions always reflected or acted out at the gut microbial level. Yeah, Kind of the, you know, what my, the, the core the centerpiece of my first book, yeah and and uh w- w- would this would this also is there any evidence to show that this would also be um responsible for some of the higher rates of autoimmune disease especially in places like america or or first world quote unquote first world countries yeah so this is a slightly different aspect but it's also related to the microbes so our immune system is being trained early on in life uh, you know the first 1000 days in life um, to differentiate between good and bad. Um, and it's not a trivial task because throughout life, we're being exposed to all kinds of things. And for our immune system to know if this is a bad signal to, and, and they, they have to ring the alarm bells or if it can be tolerated is quite a training process. And in our more and more hygienic world where we have eliminated exposure to natural not not harmful microbes, but microbes in the soil, on animals, on farm animals, um, in the milk, we pasteurize everything. So in the last 75 years, we have really declared a war on, on microbes in general. And, you know, even during this pandemic now, we had to do the social distancing and the face mask and, and constantly disinfecting your, your, your hands. That's, even that war going into overdrive, you know, because we're not just killing the bad guys, we're killing everything. So our children grow up in, um, in, in a world that uh, has much, much fewer of these microbes that are kind of the training partners for the immune system. And so the immune system becomes less intelligent, less experienced in differentiating. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, allergies like peanut allergies or, or allergies to all kinds of food items that did not exist when I went to medical school. You know, it was completely um, and initially were thought to be neurotic behaviors of, 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 of people. But those allergies based on a compromised training period of the immune system, because we're limiting the exposure to all kinds of microbes in our environment, um, that's a, uh, that's a very serious thing as well. You know, right. it's a concert. It's not exactly the same as with. Um, so, for example, I mean, as you can tell, this is a complicated area. So we have the, the early yeah. life programming phase, you know. Then we also have this problem with antibiotics, um, which also starts in early life. And, um, you know, um, children... I, I think the number is even at by the age of two are exposed to at least five doses of antibiotics. Um, and this leads to a decrease in um, the diversity and richness of our own microbiome. So um, any ecosystem, you know, like our microbiome, uh, its stability and its resilience against disease is determined by its diversity. And so what we've done is with the, with the antibiotics um, and partly with our diet, because, we, you know, uh, we, we don't feed the same kind of uh, wide variety of, of plant-based foods to our uh, infants. They get lots of sugar, which is useless for the microbes. And, um, so we have diminished the diversity and the resilience of that system inside of us for infections. And um, so there's people that have speculated with the pandemic, you know, that this decreasing diversity uh, and resilience of our own 
bacterial and microbial ecosystem in the gut is a risk factor for uh, getting infected by the virus, but also having a particularly serious course or this long COVID, what's, what's called um, uh, you know, variant of, of the disease. And that has been predicted before the pandemic. So there was a, you know, a, a really well-known professor in, in microbiology, Martin Blazer, <clears throat> who has predicted this in his, in, in his book at the time, that we will be faced with increased number of pandemics um, because we're, we're forgetting or, or neglecting the diversity in, uh, of, of, of our gut microbiome. Right. I read that, that um, just through the drinking water, that even if you haven't taken antibiotics, traces of antibiotics can, can basically be found in all human beings, at least in America. I, I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but it was something about the the amount of the medications that wind up in the in the groundwater and then it just gets recycled and that's never stripped yeah water is something you know um natural water spring water would have its own healthy microbes in it from the soil I and mean, the soil is packed with microbes and um so what we've done to our water not only contaminated it with all kinds of you know antibiotics and other uh, chemicals but we also um you know, um, to 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 prevent um, in, in 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 infections from contaminated water, make sure there's no bacteria in it. Um, so we've eliminated that whole source of of bacteria that we used to you know feed our uh, our internal ecosystem. So there's a lot of things that have come, and you know, writing my second book has sort of come narrowed it down. It's a period since World War II, that all these problems have increased exponentially, um, as well as, you know, the consequences, the diseases, uh, the allergies, the, the chronic metabolic diseases, you know. Um, so we've done things to our environment in the last 75 years and continue doing it. Um, that is worrisome. Yeah. yeah. Is there... I, I... I also remember reading something at some point uh, about um, maybe a, a younger person who had been put on heavy doses of IV antibiotics and basically their entire system was stripped of um, bacteria because they were on a, a very long course of it. And, and this might become gross. I don't mean it to be gross and I'm not kidding, but they were given a fecal transplant to repopulate bacteria and reading that, my my thought was also uh, reading a little bit about the different um, effects that these microbes can have on us, that there's got to be clearly a, a more ideal setup where you have the ones you want employed more dominantly than the ones you don't want employed. And is there any way to to do that without having to undergo like stripping your system and repopulating it with the good ones. I, I hope that. Yeah. So sense. this is, you know, um, so stripping your system, this is sort of what's called in ecology ecosystem restoration. So let's say if you have an area, you know, um, um, a forest with all kinds of uh, invasive species, you first have to kill everything and then you have to re replant it. So this is an ecological you know, principle that people have, have employed in, in natural settings. Um, it's, it's been employed in patients with autism spectrum disorders. Um, because one thing, the ecosystem of our microbes is very stable, resilient, um, and even if it's a bad ecosystem, a bad microbiome, you know, disease-related, it's still very stable and very difficult to change. So just taking a fecal microbial transplant, um, uh, and there's different ways of doing it, some more gross than others. Uh, you, can, you, you can actually, you know, do this via pills. You could do it via an endoscope into your intestine. And, um, but... Generally, the, the problem is that they can't, um, that there's what's called a, a, a colonization resistance of our gut. It will not allow these 
even if they're good microbes, to settle in uh, in our gut. It fights uh, them? Um, yeah, it just, you know, the minute, um, let me give you one example. If, if you like probiotics or yogurt, these probiotics stay in your gut for about 24 hours. When you stop eating the, the probiotics and swallowing the pills, they will disappear. They will not be allowed to stay. I like yogurt. My wife will make me take probiotics from time to time, especially she makes me, if, I, if I'm sick, which is pretty rare, and I have to take antibiotics, she follows it with probiotics. And she says, now we're going to regenerate. And it, I never notice a difference. And so I'm always doing it somewhat begrudgingly. But this is good to know. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. It's yeah, so you, you you bring up a good point, and I'll I'll come back to the autism fecal transplant. But you bring up a good point. So there are studies even that um, this habit of um, or this um, um, you know trend to give a probiotic after an antibiotic treatment. Um, there's a, there's a, a a very good study that shows it actually delays the recolonization of the gut by your own bacteria because really? it's microbes. Um, but also um, most of these probiotics, as long as you take them, yes, they will be around in your gut. But the minute you stop taking them 24, 48 hours later, they are gone. They're being, they're not allowed to stay. Um, so in, in autism spectrum disorders, it's a different situation. There's a couple of studies now where people have treated these kids with broad-spectrum antibiotic to knock out most of the existing uh, microbiome and then have done um, repeated fecal transplants every couple of weeks or so. And that procedure has been shown to be effective of actually changing the gut microbiome of these kids. Uh, even after a year later, they could still see these, the, the new you know, restored system. Um, but in general, these fecal microbial transplants have not been successful. You know, people have thought, yeah, we can do this. So people with obesity, uh, give them, uh, you know, a fecal transplant from an, of a skinny person or somebody with depression, give them somebody from a happy person. These things work in mice, but not in humans. Right. Uh, and, but you're also, I mean, I, I don't know what the case is, but with mice, you, you just said you're able to, raise a mouse in a sterile environment with no microbes so to me it just sounds like quite a bit easier you're never going to raise a human being that way um, uh, is there is there an effect in the changing of the microbiome with the autistic spectrum does that have an effect there yeah, so this has long been suspected. Um, you know, there were early studies where they showed that autistic kids have an, um, what's called a dysbiosis, an alteration of the microbial composition. Um, there have been many studies um, haven't really shown a consistent pattern. Um, but then there's also been experiments in mice where it has been shown that, um, uh, you know, the, the gut microbes have an effect through particular um, molecules that they produce on the autistic behavior and anxiety in, in, in these uh, in these animals. <clears throat> um, the the I mean the big question still is is there a cause uh, and uh, and effect and and in, in many in many situations this is still a the big challenge in this field. Um, do we have actually a, a a causal relationship you know or you could easily say, well, the microbes are changed because the brain is different and autistic kids are very angry and anxious and stressed. Their brain constantly sends signals to the gut and alters, you know, the microbial habitat and their function. So it could well, be the other way around. It, it could be the other way around, or it could be a circular thing that both mechanisms play a role. So it's, this has remained a, a major challenge, you know, and as always, much easier to show these things in animals um, because you can do all kinds of manipulations, um, but virtually impossible in, in, in humans. And so we still have this big gap of an incredibly exciting animal literature 
um, and something that takes tremendous effort and money and studies to to prove that this plays a, an important role in humans. Yeah, I also think like, and, and and I talk about diet a lot, and and I think it does come down to the idea that from person to person, the way we exist, the things we're exposed to, the amount of sleep, every little thing, the water we're drinking. It, it, so in a laboratory test, you can factor in all of that. And then when it comes down to real life, it's, it's much, much tougher to say, you know, this, this thing. Yeah. It's harder with people. Excellent point. I mean, just, you know, so we have, um, Mice that are genetically identical, they live in the same cage, the same temperature, same, same food, everything is identical. And, you know, typically in these mouse experiments, you can do an experiment in seven mice, and that shows you a significant difference. In humans, you need thousands, you know, before, before you can, and then you need, you know, artificial intelligence to pull out all the differences and the variations. So, it gets very expensive, and um, there are some efforts now of big consortia, international consortia, where you get thousands of patients, um, and I think that will move us forward. Um, uh, I mean, I would say, you know, so in 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 many ways, we we sort of can influence like many of these diseases where the microbes we think are involved um, with diet. We don't know all the details, you know, we, we, we don't know like 90% what's in between the diet and actually the brain. Right. Um, but in some ways, if you just are a practical person, say we don't really need to know that. I mean, unless you want to develop a medication that you make money with, you know, to affect this. But what we can, what, what we know today, um, it's a combination of insights from, from nutrition research and from brain research and from, um, you know, microbial research that we can influence in a positive way most of our so-called non uh, chronic non-infectious diseases in a, in a major way. You know, so we could probably eliminate eighty percent of these diseases we're suffering from from metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes, um, cardiovascular diseases, if we just got everybody to subscribe to to a healthy diet, you know, yeah. uh, but it will take decades and billions of dollars. In I, th- I mean, I, I really, I, I become very um, pessimistic here simply because, you know, and, and listen, I have a daughter with type one diabetes. So maybe that's why I gravitated more towards autoimmune. And I was mm-hmm. very interested in that, but um but so I, I'm very thankful every day that the pharmaceutical companies have created all the stuff that makes her live a normal life, you know, because I, I remember when I was a kid having friends who had type one diabetes, it it was a very different scene 40 years ago. And, uh, and now my kid it, it exists as, as just like everybody else. She, yeah. she has virtually no issues at all. Um, so I am very thankful to the pharmaceutical companies for, for that. They have done a good job. Now we could get into a squabble over how expensive it is. It's very expensive. Um, but I, I also see like for every new physical ailment that ticks up, it's almost like a shady uh, car mechanic where you take the car in because you have a flat tire and then the radiator needs to be replaced. <laughs> And then you drive away and it's like, oh, it needs a new transmission too. And so this, 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 gen- this the way we do medicine here feels very much like the propensity is always going to be throw a medication at it. And then we're going to throw a medication at each of the side effects that the first medication had. And, uh, and so I hope what you're saying is true. That we're treating a lot of this with diet, uh, but again, where's that money going to come from? Yeah, I I do share, you know, even though I've spent my entire career uh, and, uh, you know, professor at UCLA, um, I, I do share your critical view of what's going on in the modern medical system. 
it is obviously um, you know extremely profit driven at every level. Um, w- the things that are being most promoted are procedures um, to fix things, um, like a car mechanic, but not really asking why did it break or why, you know, why do we have these issues? Good example, you know, colon cancer screening. So. Um, it's a it's a good thing that we you know screen people in a in a society where colon cancer is is a you know a number one killer. Um, but what has happened, you know, that the that the age limit for doing these screenings have come down continuously. You know, um, from the fifties now it's in the forties. We wait another ten years, it's going to be in the thirties. <laughs> so pretty soon everybody is going to get a colon cancer screening, and. This is obviously extremely lucrative for my specialty as a gastroenterologist. Right. Um, so that's why, you know, some of my colleagues can make a million dollars easily a year just doing procedures, nothing else. Instead of asking, why is this happening now? Why do we all of a sudden get more colon cancer in younger people? And there's, there's very good evidence, you know, that this low-grade inflammation or immune activation that comes along with an unhealthy diet, probably with some other factors, uh, plays a big role in this. So rather than implementing programs, you know, what we teach kids in in elementary school uh, about the relationship between diet and, I mean, there's so many things that could be done early on, you know, to make people aware of this. We just try to fix it at the end where both the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industrial complex makes the most money, you know, and this is something that's really been bothering me tremendously, I have to say. And um, so this sort of somewhat course correction that I've undertaken writing books now for the lay public is really aimed at raising the awareness. You can do this in a different way. You know, you don't, and I'm also always reminded and turn on the, TV in the evening, um, and you know the 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 the, the commercials for all these um, immune modulating medications. I mean, every second commercial has to do with it, and, and the start, ones in between are for food. They're, 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 they're for food. It's it's amazing. I mean, it's wild to watch. I hadn't watched a commercial in a long time. My wife and I were at a hotel. And we turned on the TV and it was like, oh, this is going to be interesting because we haven't seen a commercial in 10 years. Food and medicine over and over. It was so wild to see. It's, uh, it's like a Siamese twin, you know, those two things um, that, um, you know, I, mean, I just remember one commercial that I, I thought wouldn't exist anymore. I, I mean, we didn't watch TV at all um, before the pandemic, but it's somehow it's yeah. gotten us like many other people. And um, so this is commercial about this, you know, completely unhealthy nutrient deficient bread. I think it's called Hawaiian bread. And <laughs> that something like this is still being advertised on TV. You know, they, they get a sandwich with 10 slices of this completely empty, unhealthy bread that starves your microbes. Um and, and then you see these these immune modulating you know um, drug commercials. It's um, yeah, it is really it's really shocking. You know, so it's uh, yeah. I, I often think about um, you know I, I I feel like there's some general idea. If you said to somebody, um, you know, could you get a healthy meal at Seven Eleven? maybe you're going to get a bottle of water and a banana and that's as healthy as you get at 7-Eleven. I, 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 I could be totally wrong, but I think that's a general idea that, you know, all the packaged stuff and chips and highly processed things are, are not truly healthy. Um, but that said, we had surgeon general warnings on packages of cigarettes long before while the cigarette manufacturers were still denying their addictiveness or their their carcinogenic uh, um uh states and 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 we come to uh, 2021 and even with a terrific pandemic uh that wiped out so many people unfortunately the number one cause of death in America is heart disease mm-hmm. and, and um, the diet here is what I think common sense says is generally unhealthy. Um, 
and still not a big deal to anyone, you know? Yeah, so this is, again, something that, that I wrote about, you know, so this this current epidemic, so we don't talk about that epidemic of um, chronic non-infectious diseases that has been increasing, you know, for the past 75 years, and it's, it's unabated, it goes on uh, unabated. So the reason that we don't talk about it is because fewer people die from it. You know, the life expectancy during the last 75 years has actually increased um, in general, it's, gone down somewhat in the U.S. last couple of years. But it's because this massive um, investment of the pharmaceutical industry to keep us from dying from these diseases. You know, the, 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 the prevalence of these diseases has been continued to increase, but the mortality from them has either been stable or decreased. Like cardiovascular disease, you know, we get bypass surgery, uh, take all these statins, all these medications. So industry is, is, is keeping people alive and uh, prevents them from dying, but is not really doing anything about, you know, the underlying problem. And so if people don't die, you know, it's, it's become... It's become normal for people after a um, age of 60 to be on a statin. So the guidelines for statins is such that pretty much 100% of, of people in Western countries should be on a statin after age 60. I mean, this is, is unthinkable. So it's become the norm. Nobody says, so we don't, you know, we can, once I reach 60, I take my blood pressure pill and my statin and a few other medications that become like the norm, but it's keeping us in this chronic disease state, you know, which keeps, you know, in some ways getting worse. And um, yeah, this is, um, and and now with the pandemic, you know, it's completely forgotten. It's um, It's not an issue at all. I mean, we all were supposed to, only order our food online and have it delivered and it's all generally fast food at that point that was the that was the way to do it it was very difficult to diet through that yeah so it's um you know people sometimes when they give a lecture um like among students and so they so at at the end somebody asks you know are are you a pessimist or an optimist in terms of where this is going to go and uh it's I mean, I am an unconditional optimist, I would say, in general. I try to stick to that philosophy. But it's, but it's going to take, um, if, you, if you look at how difficult it was with cigarettes, you know, um, it's going to take a combined effort um, of, of a lot of different parties from politically, um, um, you know, education-wise at universities, the curriculum, for physicians has to be altered. So there's much more focus on lifestyle and, and, and diet and then on, uh, you know, procedures and medications. Um, so there's, there's, I mean, the positive thing is I think the younger generations are more aware and pay more attention. There's an um, increased popularity of, um, of plant-based foods, you know, certainly on the West Coast, I, I don't know, in the rest of the country, um it's it's a growing trend um so i I think there's positive and and negative sides but it will yeah it's 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 going to be an epic battle i I think if you want to you know turn our world into a healthy version what we could be right um okay changing course a little bit could we talk about your ideas around uh restrictive eating and fasting are these the same thing so in general, in the literature, uh, intermittent fasting is sort of the catch-all term. Um, I, I think it's that's not really correct because time-restricted eating is not really fasting. You know, you, you can eat the same amount uh, over 24 hours. You just compress it into a different, um, you know, time frame. And, I mean, all these techniques again, in animal models for 20, 30 years have been shown to be beneficial in these animals for longevity and for health. And uh, in, in, in humans, the studies are just like, 
all the other examples that we talked about have not been as convincing and um, not as definitive. But I think from a practicality, since we know um, that limiting the time of food intake um, to a certain amount of, of, of the day is feasible for everybody, um, whereas not eating for two days every week, yes, a lot of people can do this for a period of time, but then they say, oh, forget it, you know, this is just too much of a hassle. <laughs> and and um, so the 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 persistence of of those habits of of um, intermittent fasting are are not it's not very good you know so I think we have to go with the practical things and I think time restricted eating is like you know sixteen hours of not putting anything into your GI tract and then compressing the the feeding time to eight hours. Is, is is realistic. You know, you may not be able to do it on the weekend where you want to go out with friends and eat and drink till 11 o'clock at night. Or if you go to to uh, Argentina on vacation or to Spain where people eat late at night, uh, it, it may not be possible. <clears throat> but for most of the time and for working people, I've talked to a lot of people. We started this during the pandemic in our family and um, it is feasible. It, it takes some adjustments. You have to stop, you know, um, eating stuff in, in, in front of the TV um, after dinner. <clears throat> but like all these other things that you can't exercise without a good breakfast, they're, they're myths, you know, they're, 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 they're myths that are trained in our, with our kids um, early on in life. Um, and then you stick with these habits. So with, demonstrate to ourselves you know we can go on long hikes um before having something to eat in the morning and um and you know have seen the benefits i mean the the, the weight reduction uh more energy uh feeling better so i would say um intermittent fasting all the techniques have shown to be beneficial in animals um but would you prefer 48 hour blocks like do the longer blocks show uh, a, a bigger result or a bigger effect on the GI tract um, so there are studies supporting both you know there's studies that where animals are being fasted for you know 24 48 72 hours and there are studies where <clears throat> they are allowed to they have, they're exposed to the same amount of food what, like in the in the animal experimental realm, it's called cafeteria food, what the rats or the mice, you know, they usually gain weight on this and develop all kinds of metabolic problems. Just like us. Just like us. <laughs> but if, if, if that's compressed to, a, to an eight-hour period, they can eat that same lousy food and they won't gain weight and, and, and they will not develop these. So the, the animal experimental evidence supports the benefit of both of these. You don't need to be fasting for 48 or 72 hours. In humans, I don't think we have the definitive word on that. You know, um, and 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 again, I, I think the most important thing is yes, there are some you know and physicians that promote the 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 two-day fasting a week, but not everybody has that um, that mental attitude. And then you know, people have families, the kids are not going to do this. So, so you're going to feed your kids, but you, you, you fast yourself. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the big problems I've had too. having kids. They're all at an age now where I don't care what they eat. They can make their own food. But when they were little and I was preparing their food, it was impossible to make them the stuff they wanted to eat and not have some, I couldn't do it. Yeah, no, no, you can't do it. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, yeah, so I mean, the summary. I, I think time restricted eating is a great thing. So I would say the best things, and you know, and and it has been shown. So you asked me about the, uh, you know, about the microbes. So that time restricted eating, that the time when your gut is empty, the microbes are in a different mode of production. They, they're not only a different mode of production of of um, of um, signaling molecules. But they also are, 
their closeness to the immune system varies between being fasting and um, and, and and eating. They're, they're closer to the immune system when you eat, and further away, separate from the immune system when you're fasting. Um, another thing happens when you're fasting is you have these stereotypic contractions going through your GI tract from the esophagus to the end of your um, uh, intestine every 90 minutes, like a clockwork. And they clean out everything that's uh, including bacteria, for example, from your small intestine, which they don't, where they don't really belong to. So during those 16 hours of fasting, you're in a cleaning mode. A, you're in a cleaning mode. B, you're in a mode where you keep your microbes away from the immune system. Um, and um, so that has all been shown in, in animal experiments. So it's, it's in some ways a, a really good way for um, housekeeping of, of, of your inside, you know, in, in, in many different ways. Uh, so there's absolutely no, no question. I would say um, if you want to do something good for your gut health, uh, give your microbes long enough time where they were not, dealing with processing food and, um, you know, interacting with your, with your GI tract. Right. Giving them a break. So combining, this is what I came up with. So combining, so this is another element, you know, doing good for your microbes. So you eat your plant-based food, um, all the stuff that you need your microbes to break down and, and nurture them. The second one is do this time-restricted eating because that puts your microbes, again, in, in a, a much better interactions with, with your gut um, than if you constantly feed them stuff. Um, so it sort of comes back to this recommendation, you know, what's the best diet? It's a diet that has the, the, the health um, and the integrity of your gut microbes uh, first on first in mind, you know, and everything else will follow. Right. And then they will in turn go to work f- helping the rest of you. Which is an interesting idea. You know, this has something to do. I, I haven't come up with a good explanation, a philosophical explanation of why that is, you know, does it have to do that? They are the most ancient life forms on earth. They, you know, they know the best. Right. <laughs> it's quite possible. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, it does, it does. I don't know why every time I try to um, envision this and we discussed, it's not something you can see. I know you can see it in a microscope, um, but it's not something you can look at. I keep seeing uh, really like um, just wild alien type stuff. You know what I mean? Because I think about these networks of particles of, of creatures that are everywhere and yet we don't see them and they're in us and there's a huge amount of them in us. It really becomes a wild thought. Yeah, no, it is, it is really mind boggling. And, um, you know, I mean, this is another philosophical dimension to this. So we were, as, as, as humans, we have this sense of self, you know, we, which, which our brain, I mean, I'm not a philosopher, but I've thought about this a lot. Um, that our brain simulates this sense of self. So we have this illusion you know, that we're separate from everything. We're the, the, the center, um, uh, the, the peak of evolution in, on, on, on this planet. We know it all. But in reality, that's an illusion that our self creates. You know, I, I think you almost have to sort of forget this and say, okay, what else is out there? And what are the forms of intelligence? So I think this microbial intelligence, I mean, just imagine we have 20,000 human genes uh, the microbiome has been estimated to have um, 20 million genes, um, you know, um, so many more. And genes basically have stored information, um, you know, instructions, blueprints for building things. So the, you, and, and they're all interconnected. So there are in, in some ways a form of intelligence, you know, of a tremendous planetary in, intelligence and um, they have given us all our neurotransmitters. You know, it all comes, they have first developed those. And so it's, I, it's I, I always go back to Carl Sagan and his description of like uh, extraterrestrials. And he's like, you wouldn't even know it. You wouldn't be able to recognize it. You know, like um, 
when uh, I, I remember prior to all the craziness that happened, but when Spanish ships landed in Hispaniola, um, a lot of the people there couldn't see them because it yeah. was just so not abnormal that it was like, there's nothing there. We can't, we cannot observe this thing. And so Carl Sagan was talking about extraterrestrial life. And honestly, the way you're talking about it, I go like, maybe they're here and they're just, you know, tiny. It is, it is possible. Yeah, it is. So, so um, it's a, it's a widely distributed system. If, if you look at, I mean, it's the reason our brain is so powerful because it's, it's, it's compacted, you know, the cells are compacted and uh, the distances of communication. But if you look at the microbes, they're all connected as well. It's just like these huge distances. And um, so they're slower in their responses. They don't act like the brain, but I personally would not be surprised if it's a form of intelligence. <laughs> Who knows if it's ancient, you know, sure. or, yeah, but it's it's definitely something that worthwhile thinking about. This is amazing. This has been such a fun conversation and a lot to think about. Dr. Mayer, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I really enjoyed this. I've, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in, in these interviews, but I mean, this has been definitely one of the more, more interesting ones. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. I'll talk to you again. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And now for the Q&A. Sometimes you got to be dignified, Paige. <laughs> this is a dignified Q&A okay. from Cody. Hi, Cody. Cody says, love the show. Listen all the time. Question, though. Yeah. I'm a big dude, like 350. I was pushing 400 about five to six months ago. I get that no pain, no gain mentality. But oh, my God, my hips and my legs sure do take a beating. Any ideas on how to treat the pain but mentally push further? I know, I know. Listen to my body. Don't push my limits. I'm talking mental strength fight through the bullshit soreness. I appreciate you. I personally don't think you should fight through the soreness. Now, let me say why. I love... David Goggins and Cameron Haynes and guys like that. I love them and they get me fired up, but I've also, you know, torn a bicep. I have arthritis in a hip. I've had my meniscus removed in a knee. I've slipped discs in my back. Any one of these things and you're done. You are, you are, you're not pushing through that. Um, and so I don't think, we should be pushing through pain like you're talking about. Um, I, the way I work out is I work out a body part and then I don't touch that body part until it's recovered and not a hundred percent recovered, but recovered to the point where I can work it out again. So, and I accumulate fatigue over the course of like a month or five or six weeks. And then I deload and I really let my body recover so that I can do that again. All of this is to say, do I go into the gym and I'm, am I ever um, a little bit sore? Yes, but it's never something where I have to psych myself out to push through. I don't think that's smart. I don't think you're going to get long-term success doing stuff like that. We cannot all be David Goggins running with broken legs. This is just not, this is not something that I think is going to be a successful recipe for most people. So I would figure out where you can safely get away with pushing yourself. Now, if it's entirely mental, um, yeah, you gotta, you require the, the amount of mental effort that I'm pushing through is a shitload, but I'm never at risk of damaging my body by pushing through that. So I think these are two very distinct things. And I think that's, um, what I love about David Goggins and Cameron Haynes and those guys is that they can get me psyched up to just get out of bed, to just, to just go to the gym, um, to just make my, uh, do my meal prep. That's the kind of thing where I am pushing through, um, in, in literal terms, something that's actively stopping me. But if, if you go and do a heavy leg session at the gym, 
and your legs are sore, don't do it the next day. I don't think you should. Um, let your legs, legs recover. And I would say if, if you can't do legs again that week, you did too much. Pull it back a little bit. Take it gradually so that, you know, like I don't ever get sore anymore, ever. I have to do something completely new to get sore. And I get exhausted and tired and I could never do cardio after I do legs because my legs are shot. But I'm not waking up with cramps. I'm not like unable to stand up the next day. I can have a perfectly normal day the next day. I'm not going to be running any marathons, but I hope hope the nuance of what I'm saying is getting through. As far as working out and pushing through the pain, don't do that. I don't think it's smart. I don't think you should. I think you're you're setting yourself up for um, injury and injury means you don't get to do anything in the gym. Um, if we're talking about mental occlusion and blockage and, and stoppage, yeah, fucking push through it. Whatever you got to do, you know, <laughs> again, I love David Coggins who's like talks about not being a bitch. Sorry. That's what he says. I'm not going to be a bitch. And it's like, yeah, I, I, I use that to, to go like, I'm going to get out of bed. I'm going to go to the gym. Uh, I'm going to do what I have to do. And I'm not saying it should be easy. It should be difficult. You know, a workout shouldn't be um, like you're not doing anything. You should be doing something. But if it's if you're running into physical pain, I, I'm not a fan of pushing through that. That is my answer uh, on that. I hope that was helpful. If you have a question you would like me to answer on this podcast, please submit it to AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. <laughs>